Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 13 through 20. Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi. There he put this question to his disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? John the Baptist, they replied. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked them. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, he said. You're the Son of the living God. God's blessing on you, Simon, son of John, answered Jesus. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. It was my Father in heaven. And I've got something to tell you, too. You are Peter, the rock. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you tie up on earth will have been tied up in heaven. And whatever you untie on earth will have been untied in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. As I mentioned, uh, this is... One year of us together as pastor and congregation. I mentioned last week that we were wrapping up our series on how God through his spirit continues to work through his church. And today's is kind of a transition message because it's still dealing with how God works through his church. But we're moving into a, a particular element of how he does and that is uh, in what is sometimes referred to as spiritual warfare. And this series is going to go on for, I'll just go ahead and say, about two months. So it's going to be a pretty long, pretty long series. A few weeks ago was the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion of Normandy, France. I wish that I could have given this message then, but with all of the other themes that needed to be covered in the series, this one needed to serve as a conclusion and beginning. That being said, we began our Pentecost series the Sunday before D-Day, and so it is fitting that we end this series remembering that event. For those of you that are not as into history as I am, here is a primer on June 6th, 1944, U.S. and Allied forces both took part in what is to this day the largest amphibious invasion in the history of mankind. It marked the beginning of the liberation of Europe and also marked the beginning of the end of the Nazi Empire. To those who served or have family that served in that invasion, we say thank you. The subject of conflict and spiritual warfare is not as popular among mainstream Christian denominations these days. Unlike our more charismatic and Pentecostal brethren, we have had a tendency to normalize 
most of the injustices and struggles that we see in this life. In other words, what I mean by that is that rather than looking at the problems in this world as a symptom of a greater spiritual issue, we look at them as what we sometimes refer to. And if you've read my newsletter yet, you'll see kind of where I'm going with this. We've referred to it as human nature. Now, granted, I do not like to give more attention to the principalities and powers of spiritual darkness than is necessary. It is important, I believe, at times to remember that we are in the midst of a war, an invisible war, but a war nonetheless. Paul explains that our war is not with other human beings. And that is where the church has at times gotten it wrong. We are not at war with other human beings. But instead, we are at war with the powers and principalities of this present darkness. These are spiritual powers that have influence upon human actions that lead people into all of the evils that we see in our world. From greed and tyranny on the large scale to violence, sexual immorality, and abuse on the personal. When we stay blind to the fact that there is an unseen world in which a bigger war is being waged, we in fact become impotent to counteract evil that we do see in our world. As I said, the evil that we see in our world is symptomatic of the evil that exists in the spiritual world. Heaven and earth are not entirely separate. And we run into, when we see evil in this world, it mirrors that which has gone on in the spiritual. So to address the situation, let us turn to our scripture today. And you may think this is an odd scripture to pick for starting, well, as I said, ending a series on God's work in the church and starting a series on spiritual warfare. Because it's actually a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And in, in, in movies that have depicted the life of Jesus, this scene is usually depicted as like a campfire scene of Jesus sitting with his disciples, uh, either during or after dinner, and he's just talking with them. And he asks them an interesting question. He says, who do people say that I am? In this translation, it says, who do people say that the Son of Man So at this point, Jesus is basically taking a poll. He's saying, what are people saying about me? And it sounds like a lot of them start to speak up. And some of them say, well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. Others are saying Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, all of that needs unpacked a little bit. Uh, You might say, how in the world will they confuse Jesus with John the Baptist? Well... You have to understand, this is in the time long before the internet. Nobody, except the people who were closest to John the Baptist and Jesus, really knew what they looked like. You might think, well, thousands of people wouldn't hear them speak. Well, you know, this church here could hold maybe, I'd say, if we really packed it in, maybe 120 people. Jesus and John the Baptist preached to thousands. 
It's all right. So, you know, if I'm standing way back here and you've got people, you know, hundreds of feet back that way, they can't see what a person looks like. If you've ever been to a concert, those people they just like little bitty ants up there on the stage. Well, that's for most of us mortals that aren't able to afford tickets that get you up front. And also consider the fact that Jesus and John were related. So they probably have a little bit. So there are some people that probably thought, hey, maybe John the Baptist got out of prison. This Jesus guy, his, his preaching sounds very similar. So that might help explain that. Now, the other things that people said was maybe he's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And this is referring back to not really an obscure, but a lesser known passage in the prophets in the Old Testament where basically it was believed that one of the prophets was going to come back before the end during the 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 term was the great day of the lord they believed that you know before god was going to establish his kingdom on earth that there would be somebody that was going to come back and the most popular candidate for that was the prophet elijah mainly because he's the only one that didn't die a horrible death he was taken up in the whirlwind so Jesus is asking all this, taking his poll, and then he asks a similar but different question. He says, now, who do you say that I am? And I, I imagine that for a moment he probably got crickets. Because deep down, what these guys are hoping, they're probably thinking in their minds, well, we hope you're the Messiah, because if you're not, we're in deep doo-doo. It's, it's kind of like one of the founding fathers of the United States. He said, you know, all of us that have started this thing, we need to all hang together because if we don't, we're all going to hang separately. So the disciples knew that if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then it was all going to end very badly for them. And then Peter speaks up and he says something that is more than just saying you're the Messiah. He says you are the Christ, which means anointed one, chosen one. This would be a turn for the Messiah. And then he says the son of the living God. Now I want to break this down for you a bit because we take this for granted. It was not assumed by the first century Jews that the Messiah was also going to be the Son of God. They believed the Messiah was going to be the Son of David, who was going to be God's right-hand man, but they did not necessarily think that the Messiah would also be God in the flesh. So this is important, and this is why Jesus says to Peter, he says, you're blessed because of this, not because you have some special insight or that somebody has told you the right answer to the question. It's that God, the Father, has told you this. And then he gives this statement saying, Simon, you are now Peter, which is a word for rock. The one, you are the rock. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, most of us always go to the explanation saying that this means that the church will be built by and on Peter. Well, there's some truth to that. 
But I think really what Jesus is saying is what Peter said is what the church will be built on. What did Peter say? He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In other words, Jesus is saying, you are the rock because of this. And on the rock, the truth that you have, I'm going to build my church on this. And then he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm not a big fan of the church using the political tools of this world to do the work of the kingdom. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. And what that means is his kingdom is not like kingdoms in our world. Kingdoms in our world, including the greatest democracies, including our own, how do they accomplish and enforce their will? They do it through force. You know, granted, sometimes it's force that's used in an appropriate way, but force is what is used. Might in the worldly sense. The early church did not seem to use politics to its advantage, save one exception that I can think of, and that is Paul using his citizenship to get a ticket to go to Rome and speak to the emperor. That's the only example that I can think of. And that's not much of a manipulation. He's just saying, I want to speak to the emperor. And he's still going to get his head cut off. All that being said, when the church is timid and acts as though it has no authority, I believe we find ourselves in the situation that we do today, where the world just looks at the church as a quaint relic of the past, where a bunch of nuts get together to pray. That's how the world looks at the church. The church does not have to play politics to have the power that it is supposed to have. The early church had next to no political strings to pull. The majority of the people that belonged to the early church were people on the fringes of society. They were Jews that had... Uh, decided that Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews were not well liked by the Romans. They were slaves and servants. They were those that were sick. They were those that were poor. They were not in people that had political influence. And yet, I don't think there is a historian in the world, secular or otherwise, that would dispute the fact that the emperor himself was scared to death of these crazy Christians. And we have to ask why. Why would the most powerful man on earth, Caesar Tiberius, and those that came after him, why would they be so scared of a bunch of Jews and slaves and poverty-stricken People that claim some guy rose from the dead. I'll tell you why. Traditional Roman belief was that the emperor was a god. He was considered to be the spiritual son of Roma, the goddess of Rome. And so as such, the emperor and his governors that served under him were considered to wield the power of Rome. This is why whenever people would rebel against Rome, they would crucify people by the thousands to make a point. 
And so the ultimate wielding of power, the power of Roma that the emperor and his governors could do, is to sentence somebody to death. All right? Caesar's lieutenant, Pontius Pilate, sentences Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he gets up. What does that say about the power of Roma? What does that say about the power of Caesar? It's nothing. For the Roman emperors, they knew there was only two options. Either these people are crazy, or if this guy rose from the dead, I'm in deep trouble because he's stronger than I am. If he can take the worst that I can do and then just get back up again, then he's more powerful than Rome. And so we come again to Peter's confession. As I said, the rock, I believe, isn't just Peter, but it is the truth that he confesses. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This scared and continues to scare all those who wield secular power to this day. There's a reason why the leader of North Korea does not want Christianity in North Korea. There's a reason why Christianity is persecuted in nations that are dominated by tyranny. It's because they know that if this guy is who he says he is, then they are in deep trouble. And so the spiritual relevance of this We have this statement where Jesus says, Of this rock, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I think the common thought has been people think, Okay, the gates of hell are going to come against us, and we're going to have to defend against it. I don't think that's what this means. Gates don't move. Gates don't advance. Gates are a stationary object. Gates are to keep something out. When Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he's not saying that we will defend successfully against the powers of spiritual darkness. It's that we will invade successfully into those places that are held by spiritual darkness and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. When the church builds its platform and draws its strength from the truth of who Jesus is, then we are able to address the evils of our world and fight against the darkness. We can challenge and defeat all forms of injustice and evil and oppression and heartache when we fearlessly stand on the truth of Christ and who he is. In the coming weeks, we will be looking primarily at Ephesians chapter 6 as it applies to standing firm in the gospel and fighting against evil and all of its forms. But the point today is that the war is already won in Christ and what he did on the cross. In closing, I will borrow from the end of the D-Day address that General Dwight D. Eisenhower gave to the troops at the head of the battle Let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God in this great and noble undertaking as the church goes forth 
to bring light into the darkness. Amen. As we continue our worship service today,